Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where, as always, you'll find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your game to the next level. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Alan Walker, PhD, whose recent work on biomarker response over a competitive season in female soccer players is a fascinating look at how and why hormones and nutrients may fluctuate over the course of a rigorous elite collegiate soccer season. Alan did his graduate work with Dr. Sean Arndt, at Rutgers University and brings a wealth of knowledge from the training and nutrition side of things, as well as the viewpoints of a researcher and practitioner. In this episode, Alan shares his insights into how biomarkers can provide a bigger picture to inform an athlete's stress load over the course of 24 hours. He'll talk specificity versus sensitivity when it comes to testing. Alan will also dive into his work on tracking seasonal-long biomarker changes in elite female soccer players, how the collegiate preseason takes a heavy toll on athletes, the connection between IL-6, hepcidin, and iron regulation, the delayed effect that's seen in his work on biomarker assessments, the value of education and transparency when trying to translate this stuff into practice, and of course his big rocks, his fundamentals, for athletes to support performance and recovery. Great conversation here with Alan. You can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you're interested in more on this topic, then definitely circle back to my conversation with Dr. Sean Arndt in season two, episode number 12, assessing body composition, performance metrics, and biomarkers. You can also check out season two, episode 24 with Dr. Richard Moore, ND for more of the health and longevity side with blood tests and biomarkers. Terrific. This episode is sponsored by my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. Jason Hetler, strength and power coach at world-renowned Altus Performance in Arizona, says, Dr. Bubbs, with an immense respect for the complexity of athletic performance, has brought together an in-depth knowledge on many key underpinnings of high performance. Peak is sure to be a lasting resource with applicability across many contexts. You can check out all the expert blurbs at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. Of course, if you want to share some feedback, you can reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Dr. Bubs. Please uh, ask questions, share your insights, and of course, you can also use the hashtag GoPeak. Awesome. Season 3, Episode 35 with Dr. Alan Walker on Biomarkers and Sport. Enjoy. Alan, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yep, thanks for having me. Terrific. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to diving into your terrific research on you know, biomarker responses, training load, and, and competitive female soccer players here. But before we jump in, maybe you could give listeners a little whirlwind tour of your background and how you got into performance research. Okay, so I started my graduate work at Rutgers, uh, studying under Dr. Sean Arndt. I spent the past seven years over there with him, 
looking at uh, monitoring training load in athletes and utilizing sports science and ways to really maximize athlete health and performance. And since then, I moved to my new job as an assistant professor of exercise science at Lebanon Valley College. That's terrific. And I'm, uh, you know, seven years with, with uh, Sean over there at Rutgers must have been a pretty, uh, pretty insightful time for you and uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of lessons learned, I'm sure, and, and a lot of terrific projects. And, you know, before we get talking about women's soccer here or football, I guess, as most of the world calls it, um, definitely the most popular sport in the world, right? I think there's over 260 million people um, across all ages and sexes playing uh, soccer yet very little research on the women's side of the game. So maybe you can start this conversation by telling listeners a little bit about the physical demands of elite female soccer. Uh, so we've done a couple studies. Hopefully they'll be coming out here soon that actually compared at the collegiate level um, both the, the males and females players. Um, they were actually remarkably fa- fairly similar, and the women cover about 7 to 8 miles per game, uh, as high as 10 miles per game, 1,300 to 1,500 different changes of direction. They can burn anywhere from 2,000 to 2,500 calories in a single game, a single 90-minute match. So they were actually remarkable similar to the males, despite the differences in those maximum speed zones. Interesting. And I guess that sets this tone for you know, using different tools to monitor, especially things like biomarkers. And of course, you know, heart rate monitoring is obviously commonly used in, in monitoring training load on the field or the court with athletes, giving this snapshot of, of an internal effort but it doesn't give us the total picture does it you know there's a missing piece could you walk folks through uh through that yeah so we uh we utilize a lot of heart rate monitoring gps monitoring and like you said it really just gives you an idea of what's going on on the field so let's just say you have a two-hour training session you can only evaluate your athletes for two hours now the nice thing about biomarkers is they start to get you a little bit more of a encompassing view of how these athletes are not only responding to the stress of the training load, but also the stress of life. I mean, they have personal stresses. In my case, they had academic stresses. They have different dietary habits. They have different sleep habits. They have all of these other different things that are all going to build into developing a well-rounded athlete. So biomarkers were a nice addition to our, uh, our training load monitoring in that we got to have a more of a pretty much an objective snapshot of how they are responding to this overall life stress that includes their training. Yeah, it's incredible how that other 22 hours, as you describe it there, of someone's life has obviously a massive, massive impact on their ability to recover, you know, perform, immunity, all these things. And, and of course, we don't, we aren't able to really see in those other hours of the day and be able to get a sense of exactly how much stress or perceived stress on a academic side or mental emotional side. And so interesting to see how biomarkers can play a role in that. And, you know, what, what is the body of knowledge when we talk about female athlete biomarkers compared to, you know, the male counterparts? Unfortunately, the body of knowledge is pretty scarce. <laughs> There's not much sure. there right now. And it's, it's really driven And I don't want to say that researchers are scared of the menstrual cycle, but it's really driven because of the menstrual cycle. I mean, you have uh, two two athletes, one's male, one's female, even doing the exact same study. As soon as you go to the female side, your critique is, did you uh, consider the menstrual cycle? Mm -hmm. So it seems like that's just the the driving factor of what's really dictating the different sports, because there's plenty of athletes on both sides. We have plenty of subjects. It's just most research don't want to try to account for the menstrual cycle. 
Yeah, and it's obviously fascinating with the, the growth of, of women's sport and professional women's sport and, of course, more and more research in sort of these real-world settings of, of, of what's going on you know, in, in a real-world scenario with these elite uh, athletes. And, of course, we see more and more work done with these biomarkers and, of course, your work here, which we'll, we'll dive into. But uh, before we do, can you maybe give listeners, just to get everyone on the same page here, maybe a, you know, a definition of, of sensitivity and versus specificity when it comes to testing? Yeah, when it comes to tensity, testing, our sensitivity is really going to be more of our true positive or the proportion of our actual positives that are correctly identified as positive, right? So we have this, uh, let's just use creatine kinase, our identifier of uh, muscle damage. So the percent of people that has excessive muscle damage now having higher creatine kinase levels. Mm-hmm. Now specificity is kind of our kind of the flip side, which is our true negative or the proportion of our actual negatives that are correctly identified as negative. So if we go back to our same analogy, it's our percent of athletes who don't experience muscle damage and they won't have these elevated levels of creatine kinase. Yeah, so definitely important to consider, isn't it, when people are looking at different biomarkers and, and you know whether it's specific for exactly what they're looking at and, and sensitive enough to be able to pick up um, what's going on in that athlete, right? Exactly, to make sure that we're actually measuring and testing what we think we're measuring and testing. Fantastic. And on that note, can you walk listeners through the study design and your work on biomarker responses over a competitive season in female soccer players? Yeah, so the goal of this, this was really an observational study where we wanted to evaluate the effects of season-long training load on various biomarkers and performance uh, and performance factors in this real-world setting. So how we kind of set this up is we did performance testing prior to the start of their preseason and after the end of their last tournament game. With this testing battery, we did body composition, vertical jump, and VO2 max. Throughout the whole season, we measured a trading load. We used the Polar Team 2 system, so we got a heart rate values and overall caloric expenditure for every practicing game. And then on top of that, we did biomarker analysis. We did that prior to the start of preseason and then every 28 days afterwards. So we didn't technically account for the menstrual cycle because we saw it as our athletes can't control or account for these menstrual changes or these different phases of their cycle. So we use this rough, loose kind of 28-day affiliation for our every, uh, every blood draw, so that way we can kind of have a, a somewhat offbeat counter. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, terrific design. And, you know, in terms of if we start uh, digging into some of the, the key findings, maybe starting with the preseason period, obviously training load and energy expenditure being the highest, uh, consistent with what we see in, in men's soccer and other sports. However, that collegiate preseason is pretty unique, isn't it? In the fact that it's only a couple of weeks uh, and there's some pretty big changes that are happening in that initial period. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, the collegiate preseason for uh, NCAA, especially for fall athletes, is really tough. So they have a limitations where they can't interact with their athletes prior to the start of preseason. Then they only give them a two-week day or two-week time frame to ramp these players up and make sure they're game ready before they're starting their first match. So the time frame is incredibly short and it's incredibly stressful with these coaches, most often using multiple practices per day. They have very limited rest and it's very stressful on the athletes. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to see, isn't it? I mean, I guess that highlights the importance of, you know, the off-season programs that these athletes are doing. Is that something that's able to offset some of this or or perhaps maybe even just telling us a little more about some of those physiological changes that you did see in that in those first couple weeks as well 
Yeah, the off-season programming is extremely important. And, and anybody who has worked with collegiate athletes know that you could even have the best program in the world, but if your athletes don't do it, then <laughs> for sure, not a program. Exactly. Uh, so we really seem to have this mixed bag of uh, athletes that come in ready and good to go for the start of preseason where they've ramped up enough that they are in good shape to start this training load mm -hmm. versus some of our athletes that just they weren't quite at the level that we wanted. And then we have two weeks to try to whip them into shape to get them competition ready, which is extremely challenging from the coaching standpoint of not knowing really where your athletes are coming in. Uh, you guys noted some pretty significant physiological changes in that first block, those first couple of weeks of preseason. Can you share some of those insights with folks? Yeah, interesting to what we thought was going to happen. Most of these changes that we saw were really nutritional. So we saw some pretty significant changes in our hematological status, as well as our status of uh, omega-3s, where during this really high-stress, high-strain area, we thought we would see a little bit more hormonal fluctuations in, say, cortisol or IL-6. Interesting that the dietary side is, is playing such a big role, especially in that preseason phase when, you know, as collegiate athletes get back or athletes at any level really trying to establish and set the foundations for nutrition. And obviously we're seeing that uh, things like omega-3 and, you know, incredibly important. And, and in terms of the hematological side of things, are there certain areas in particular that uh, were more uh, pronounced for you? Uh, yeah, so after that initial four-week block, we saw, I believe it was a 56% drop in their iron status. Uh, not only did their iron status drop, they had lower stores of uh, ferritin, but that also dropped uh, total iron, iron binding capacity. All of these things changed in a kind of a, a negative or a unfavorable fashion. And while most of these athletes stayed above markers or levels of iron deficiency anemia, I would argue that 50% uh, 56% drop is not always the best for an aerobically driven athlete. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? To see that the, obviously the difference between the general population and screening for a Frank pathology uh, or deficiency versus an athletic population looking for performance and seeing this, you know, what the Delta is between their, their typical normal value and where they might drop to. And of course, when you see 56% decreases, that really jumps off the page, doesn't it? And could you share a little bit of the connection there between IL-6 and hepcidin and what's going on with, with iron status and that reaction? Yeah, so IL-6 is very interesting. And um, other than just being, you know, your inflammatory cytokine, marker of muscle damage, things along that, it actually plays a pretty interesting role in stimulating hepcidin. So when hepcidin expression is increased, it actually regulates iron absorption. So when we have an increased amount of hepcidin, we're actually going to decrease overall iron absorption. And so that sort of comes part and parcel then with this terrain of athletes having higher inflammatory load with obviously potentially higher training load or, or insufficient recovery or a lot of the things that you might see in a preseason type setting, correct? Yep. Awesome. And you guys also found some big... We Shift gears here to the hormonal side. In week eight and week sixteen, you noted some some big hormonal disruptions. Was that you know an expected finding at those times? And can you share what you found? Yeah, so that wasn't an expected finding. What we really thought was going to happen going into this, this was our first year that we were really utilizing biomarkers, is that we would have these hormonal uh, disruptions kind of following that initial preseason stress. We knew going into this that every year preseason is going to have the highest stress levels on the athletes just because 
the hands are forced to have the highest training load, mm-hmm. especially coming in with a essentially unknown training background over their summer. We don't know what they were doing, if they were training properly, if they were following their programming, and if they actually got ready for this season or this part of the season, they could be very, very stressed and almost an inappropriate training load applied. But we actually didn't see that. So uh, it was slightly interesting, but we saw this kind of uh, delayed effect on these various biomarkers where we had this eight-week increase in both our total cortisol, free cortisol, our prolactin, and a trend with an increase in our IL-6. And then eight weeks later, everything stayed fairly elevated at week 16. We had this second increase in total cortisol, free cortisol, IL-6. Yeah, it's interesting to note that sort of delay and, and, and how, as practitioners, someone can then you know, make sense of what they're seeing in some of these biomarkers because you know, at what point, in your opinion, in terms of you know, the subjective uh, wellness of some of these athletes at different points, are there, are there areas before that week 8 or week 16 that there might be um, some notes in terms of subjective well-being of these athletes or, or is it merely you know, looking at some of these biomarkers and, and seeing the elevations and, and being more reactive? Is, is, you know, what, what do you feel would be you know, most impactful for a practitioner who's trying to make sense of this information? Well, I think a lot of this you have to consider not only the accumulation of the training load on the field or on the court, uh, but also what else is going on in their lives. Again, this is kind of getting at this holistic view and utilization of biomarkers to get at everything else that's going on in their life. So for example, this uh, initial eight-week rise, that can kind of really start to coincide to uh, the team entering Big Ten play. Their competition is going to start to go up. They're going to start to have a more robust travel schedule going out to the Midwest and all of these other uh big conference games. We're going to start to kind of coincide with uh, midterm grades, all of these other stressful life events that are going to build and overall impact and affect performance. Interesting. We can move move on to that week 16, where now we're in tournament play. We're going to argue that uh, competition and uh, stress levels are going to be even higher. It's going to be even uh, harder for these athletes to maintain all of this. Plus, we're going to keep compiling up projects due with school finals are going to start to occur. We have all these other life stressors that are, like I said, are really going to start to play into this overall response, this overall athlete health and readiness for on-field performance. Yeah, that's something that was really fascinating is this idea of, of athletes being at their lowest physical fitness during the most competitive phases of the season, which is, again, you know, perhaps surprising for a lot of folks and, or maybe not so surprising if you're a strength and conditioning coach working in collegiate sport. But, you know, when we look at these things, whether it's accumulating of the training load, you know, the energy expenditure, insufficient recovery, are there certain buckets that are playing a bigger role here? Or is it merely the fact that we've got to go and make sure that we're addressing all these various areas to support athletes and and being able to be uh, physically ready to play in in the biggest, biggest moments of the year? Uh, I feel like it's it's tough. It's really trying to address all of these different things, making sure they're handling stress appropriately, making sure we're having adequate caloric intake to really kind of offset this overall energy expenditure, making sure we're getting this adequate rest. But that's, for most of the time, a lot easier said than done. Um, I know a lot of these athletes, especially at the collegiate level, they might not always even just have the base knowledge of how much they need to eat. If I tell one of my players that you just burned – 2,000 calories, that doesn't always kind of translate to the overall amount of food that they have to eat mm-hmm. to try to refuel. 
and even just the quality of food that they should be eating and how they should be refueling. Yeah, that's that's really insightful. And of course, uh, you know, for yourself with with Dr. Arndt, who I had on, a, you know, last season on the podcast, any tricks of the trade that you guys like to use on that energy, you know, making up that energy expenditure side of things from a dietary standpoint, you know, what are some of the messaging or, or, or tips or action points that you relay to your athletes in order to get caloric intake up enough to meet those demands? I think uh, two things. One is just this baseline education. Uh, we were lucky enough to have uh, Michelle Arndt, who actually worked with our women's soccer team as well, uh, work in kind of give them a whole uh, educational piece on how they should be eating and what types of foods they could be eating. And just that little bit of educational can really go a long way. And then the second part, I think, is really uh, transparency. So let them know how much they're expending. Let them have kind of an idea of how their body needs to be refueled, how they need to approach this problem. Because a lot of times you can give them a, a team average or this or that, but there's a big difference between a bench player and a starter. Uh, I think transparency with these players and letting them know that they're not necessarily being graded and evaluated, but this is a tool to try to help them be better athletes. 100% and definitely an eye-opening tool, I think, as you must have seen with a lot of your athletes in terms of the amount of food they can eat to just get up to what they need to in terms of uh, meeting some of those uh, caloric needs and, and not putting on weight, which can sometimes be a fear, whether it's men or women. Yep. Uh, you know, youth athletes always wanting to stay lean as well as performing and everything else. And so that's a, you know, could definitely be an eye-opener for young athletes. And and Alan, as an expert yourself in training load, what about on that side of the equation? You know, what can be done or, or what are some strategies that, you know, SNC coaches or, you know, performance staffs can use to help mitigate some of this? Uh, one, I know a lot of these uh, performance decreases that we saw are, some of them are just going to be a kind of a combination of everything. Just some of our athletes just start to break down. So we need to try to prevent that breakdown as much as possible. We did try to taper the training load as much as we could going into that uh, the tournament play, but then you get into the age-old fight of coach wants to be on the field. You want everybody to kind of pull it in, kind of try to promote rest and recovery. And mm -hmm. the thing is just trying to find a good balance where it's not only educational for the players, but the coaches as well. You need to try to find this happy medium of promote rest and recovery, allow coach enough time on the field to feel like they are prepared. And maybe that's a a trade-off between a little less on-field time, a little bit more film time. It's it's going to be a, a delicate dance between a sports scientist and the coach to try to find a good way to approach this problem. Yeah, delicate dance is certainly right. And uh, I guess another great part of all those types of research that you're doing, uh, Alan, is that maybe the coaches as well, obviously, getting to, to see this and see what, uh, you know, the load that players are under. And when we talk recovery, you know, for you guys, when your time at Rutgers and, and even currently, you know, any strategies on the recovery front? Is it a heavy focus on sleep and sleep extension in collegiate athletes? Are there certain modalities that you guys like to use with different athletes to help to promote uh, recovery? Uh, we like to just promote overall healthy habits, and whether that be healthy habits with stress management, healthy habits in uh, sleep management, diet, to try to educate our athletes to the point where they can make a, a good logical decision that's going to be based around their health and performance and not just what their friends do, what they've always done, to try to give them the tools to decide 
for themselves. Yeah, it's tremendous, isn't it? When you can really set those habits in and, and have an environment that's conducive for athletes to to start making those right decisions and, and layering them in so they do become automatic and, and athletes aren't having to, or coaches and performance staff aren't always having to keep tabs and reminding, even though that's sort of part of the game, but you know, the, yep. the, the, the good, the good teams or the, you know, the, the athletes who really lead, you can, they, they lead by example. And so it definitely helps when you got those on your team. And Alan, if we, Circle back to you mentioned prolactin, and I know obviously testosterone commonly used biomarker in men, showing that you know anabolic catabolic balance. However, you know female athletes resting values are pretty low. You know, so therefore you guys are using some secondary indicators, things like sex hormone binding globulin and prolactin. So can you circle back and discuss those two markers and what you found in your research? Yeah, so these were uh, like you said, kind of uh, some exploratory biomarkers that we wanted to see are they moving the needle, right? So we have this high training load. Let's see what is actually responding to this high training load. So we didn't see too much with sex hormone binding globulin, but interestingly, we did see this change in prolactin, especially at this uh, eight-week and 16-week mark. Uh, We know that prolactin responds to stress, hypoglycemia, physical exercise, pretty much everything that's going to be describing our full season, this very stressful high training load. And this is really important, and I think it's very interesting that uh, increases level increased levels of prolactin actually have this suppressive effect on estrogen. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, there's a lot more research needs to be put into prolactin. Could this be a viable marker for uh, non-functional overreaching, uh, overtraining syndrome? But this could start to play into this uh, uh, relative energy deficiency in sports, amenorrhea, these altered sex hormones in our female athletes. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, definitely a great red potential red flag to to throw up to to really be able to dig a little bit deeper and have more conversation with athletes to see if they are fueling appropriately and if training load is on point. And you found that it actually dovetailed pretty well with cortisol as well, didn't you? Yes, yeah. So it really mirrored that same HPA axis elevation. So maybe we're not only getting HPA but HPG axis kind of uh, disruptions throughout our our training year. And when we think about, you know, health, metabolism, you know, thyroid is always one that is commonly uh, discussed, whether it's with athletes, whether it's in the general population. What did you guys find with, in terms of thyroid markers and, and how they were trending with the competitive season? Uh, we actually found an uh, a interesting response that kind of contradicts some of the research. We had a slight increase in our uh, T3. That was the only thyroid hormone we got to have in this uh, particular particular year, but we had a slight increase following that preseason, which typically we see the opposite of a, a decrease following a high training load. But following that preseason, it kind of normaled out and stayed relatively stable for the rest of the year. And can you speculate on, on why you think that might be in, in your cohort, that, that trend towards increasing T3 in that initial phase? Uh, it could have been an energy sparing mechanism when we have this time of uh, real high caloric expenditures. So that was our, our main thought process going into there. Uh, mm-hmm. But once it uh, kind of returned to towards their baseline levels, we didn't think that that would necessarily play a, a huge role into it. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting to note because, yeah, obviously in you know female rowers and others, we see sort of, a, a, you know, contrary findings and so really interesting to see that in uh in your women's uh, soccer team there yep 
And Alan, you know, I'm really interested as well on the, uh, obviously the, the nutrient biomarkers that you tested, you mentioned iron, mentioned omega-3, you know, what about vitamin D? What, what trends did you pick up on there uh, throughout the season? Our vitamin D uh, remained relatively stable throughout the whole year with a slight decrease towards the end of the year. Um, this is, I don't want to say it's fairly common, but it kind of coincides with our seasonal changing. That's when it starts to get more towards our fall season on the East Coast. Our athletes start to wear more clothes, even despite being an outdoor sport. Uh, it seems to follow the typical seasonal changes that we see with vitamin D. Absolutely. And would you then, you know, in terms of when you, your time at Rutgers or, you know, even commenting at the moment, whether, you know, a supplemental plan for the athletes involving things like omega-3 and iron and vitamin D, are those some staples for you? Is it, uh, uh, you know, strictly a food first approach where you're trying to emphasize the foods that are, that are higher in these nutrients? I would love to take a food first approach, but that doesn't always get the job done. <laughs> for sure. I mean, that, sure. that can be a, a, a tough task for some of them. So some, when, when appropriate, I think supplementation would be great. Um, I think omega-3 is a pretty blanket supplement that athletes can, in general, take to find a lot of benefits. Uh, for a lot of these iron changes, I think it's really going to be dependent on the athletes. We had some real responders versus non-responders in response to this really high training load of some athletes really plummeted and kind of bottomed out, and they stayed right around those clinical, uh, clinical levels of uh, uh, anemia, but they didn't quite go over. So maybe we need to address this clinical versus optimal levels in athletes, and maybe supplementation can help us stay in this more optimal level. 100%. And, you know, Alan, what, what are your thoughts when we see trends? I mean, 20 years ago when I was in university, you know, vegan diets were, were, were popular and, and gaining a lot of traction. And then, like most trends, things sort of ebb and flow. And, and you know, 20 years later, we're back here and, and more and more younger athletes and athletes of all ages actually are, are following more of a vegetarian or vegan approach, which obviously is going to play a big role in things like iron. So, you know, thoughts, you know, for practitioners who are listening in or, or docs even, you know, what are some of the strategies you guys might use to be able to support that or any considerations that you have when, when athletes are coming in and maybe have switched their diet over to a vegan approach? Uh, they really have to just be aware of uh, I don't want to say challenges in a negative connotation, but just challenges with those diet to get uh, adequate protein intake, to get this adequate levels of iron. And, you know, supplementation may be crucial for some of these athletes because it is going to be very difficult to get that same uh, amount of nutrients in that particular diet. Not saying that it's un it's not doable, but they just need to be aware of these uh added challenges that they'll have to face with their particular diet choice. Yeah, very well said. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, you get collegiate athletes and sometimes we like to give, you know, interventions based on the best possible environment or scenario. And that's often in real world settings, not the case. And we've got, a, if you've got busy young athletes with lots of other stressors, then, you know, making sure we're, achieving the outcome of getting those levels that we want. And so this is, you know, could potentially be a really appropriate spot, as you mentioned there, yeah, for some supplementation around athletes to make sure to have a bit of an insurance policy to that they're getting these nutrients in the, in the levels that you're after. And of course, if they're lucky enough to have biomarkers being tested regularly through the year, then, then that can be uh, assessed and, and adjusted as need be. Now, Alan, you've obviously uh, done some great work here. I'm, I'm curious, um, 
or before I jump into your thoughts on the evolution of a lot of this research, maybe just discuss with folks, you know, as with all studies, some limitations that, that might crop up that might influence some of the, uh, the interpretations. Oh, of course. Our study has uh, several limitations, which uh, I don't want to address as uh, they're not necessarily, I think, a bad thing. Some people uh, will harp on them a little bit more than others, but I think it kind of speaks to the unique aspect of these real world and free living situations. Um, for sure. One of, the, one of the first limitations that we had is we didn't control for diet. So that was one that came up several times in the review process and overall and it was funny, during this process, I was just kind of thought to myself, uh, I wonder if they've ever worked with a, a real team and tried <laughs> yeah, exactly. to assess diet of like 30-plus <laughs> uh, 18- to 22-year-old female athletes. Yeah. It's just extremely diet or uh, difficult. See, I'm on diet now. <laughs> yeah, there you go, right? Difficult for sure. Yeah. And another thing with that is that sometimes when we're trying to uh, address that in the this you know, free living population and say we're going to use three day diet, dietary recalls. It's, it's hard to hang my hat on some of these things because mm -hmm. don't necessarily always provide with, provide you with the most accurate data. Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, as you mentioned, obviously the free living athlete aspect of this, of, of, of seeing this in a real world scenario is just so valuable mm -hmm. for practitioners and, 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 and docs and medical staff to be able to really see what's going on in, in an athlete throughout a season because it does help to inform what folks are going to do from a nutrition standpoint, from a training standpoint, from a recovery aspect. So, you know, really fascinating, fascinating stuff here, Alan. And if I could pick your brain a little bit here, talk about the evolution of research in, in this area and, of course, in your specialty and, and training load, you know, what do you see coming down the pipeline in five to 10 years or, or what's got you excited? Uh, well, first, let me circle back real quick. We did have another major limitation that I wanted to point out. No uh, worries. That's like I said, we didn't control for the menstrual cycle. And a lot of, uh, a lot of practitioners and people out there in uh, more of the hard science will uh, throw up a lot of red flags saying, well, you didn't control for these hormonal variations. You didn't do this. How can we uh, assess these biomarkers and take them for face value for any changes or lack thereof in some cases. Uh, and our approach to this was really, again, this real-world scenario. We have a team filled with, again, 30, uh, 20 to 30 female athletes. They don't have a dial to switch to, say, mid-luteal phase every game just because that's where they want to go. I mean, mm -hmm. this is something that these athletes uh, encounter every day in their uh, training. So why should we always try to control for these various factors if they can't themselves control for it and really get this holistic approach to see what these athletes are going for and what's really happening inside? How are these biomarkers actually changing in response? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It is, uh, you know, so, so informative for for practitioners, which at the end of the day, trying to help athletes, I mean, you know, trying to, to win more games and to skip both performance outcomes, it's so so key to have those insights. Yeah, it really gets into just the real versus ideal. Ideally, I would love to have all of their uh, nutritional data. I'd love to be able to control for the menstrual cycle and test these uh, the blood biomarkers and performance values at the exact same time of in their phase. But uh, real world, we, you can't do that. That doesn't translate into uh, that's not usable data for a lot of people. That's uh, can't really translate to a strength coach who has four teams they're working with. How can I, how can I use that and try to control for all those different factors? Yeah, absolutely. 
And so on that note, yeah, in the evolution, what do you think in terms of five or 10 years down the road, you know, where are we going with biomarkers and, and you know, maybe even chiming in around things like training load, what are you seeing in, in your work and what you're up to these days? I really think biomarkers, uh, they're incredibly useful, but I don't think it's the end all be all. It's just, it's another tool to be used in, in conjunction with our training load GPS heart rate in conjunction with uh, maybe some sort of nutritional analysis to use it with uh, our sleep analysis. We could throw heart rate variability in there. All of these other different ways where we can really monitor athletes and uh, kind of address their overall, uh, for lack of a better term, just readiness. I think this is just going to give us another, another tool to use. Absolutely. And, you know, Alan, if you had your perfect world scenario, is there a certain amount of, of collections in a season that would be most ideal for you and on the flip side is there sort of a you know a bare minimum amount that you'd want to take if, it, if the budgets are pretty tight yeah it's it's again with this real versus ideal scenario where i mean even trying to do this every week it would really get to become uh burdensome for the athlete i mean uh there has to be this kind of uh goldilocks zones when it comes to testing and evaluation and all of these other things that we can always do to our athletes doesn't mean we necessarily should do them to their athletes. Uh, with that being said, I like at least maybe two to four, every two to four weeks would be great. Um, you could try to expand that a little bit more, but if we start to expand it to, let's say, eight weeks, we're really going to start to miss this, the actual change. Are we missing a whole a peak in a valley of, say, like a, an IL-6 or something along those lines? And we're not getting enough information to then be able to act on that information that we're getting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it. Uh, I guess ease of collection is always a, a key one as well. If, like you mentioned, athletes have so many burdens and so many people talking at them, whether it's the coaches and therapists and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, yeah, if you can be as seamless as possible with the collection definitely helps. And, and so, you know, monthly collections does sound like a great idea. And, um, what about for yourself on the, on the, on the training side of things, training load, you know, when you look at collegiate athletes, are there, you know, in some of the gaps that are still being out there that can be, um, you know, areas for mar some marginal gains in order to help these athletes get through seasons, you know, is, is it a better off season program? Are there things based on what you saw from some of your work here that, that, you know, performance staff, um, could be doing throughout the year to help offset some of that load? Yeah, it's really going to start with our off-season training. It's making sure our athletes are really coming into that preseason ready to go, and so their training load isn't going to be this inappropriately high training load to what they had been doing. And that's really, especially in the collegiate level, going to put a lot of pressure on the athletes themselves. They're going to have to technically start their preseason training anywhere from two to four weeks before entering this uh, their collegiate preseason to really get this uh, adequate amount of time to ramp up their intensity and really get to this game ready so that way they can enter the preseason being ready to go so it's it is going to fall on them a lot then from the sports scientist aspect it really has to be the approach of you have a team of individuals so when i'm looking at training load and manipulating training load i need to make sure i'm looking at these things on an individual basis and addressing any overreaching or under training aspects on an individual level to really program and make sure we are training that team of individuals to maximize performance across the board from starters all the way down to 
uh, bench players. Uh, great advice, Alan. And, you know, we do have a lot of coaches who listen in as well. And so I thought, uh, you know, what, for yourself, if you're giving advice to some coaches and coaching staffs in terms of, you know, what you've seen in, in your work and what you're currently seeing, you know, what are, what's a, you know, one piece of advice you might give coaches when it comes to this idea of, of you know, with, with training load and athletes being able to make it through these seasons and what we're seeing from a biomarker standpoint? Uh, no, one thing, very interesting thing that we've, uh, we've seen, and hopefully we get this uh, research out here soon and still in the publication process, is this idea of, uh, we, we call it our fit athlete paradox. And what we saw was that our fit athletes coming into the preseason, so our higher VO2 max, lower uh, body composition, actually were incurring a little bit more an exaggerated biomarker response. So it seemed a little bit counterintuitive to say, hey, we have these more fit individuals having this, uh, for lack of better terms, a, a more physiological disruption. So I guess my advice to coaches and other sports scientists is just because a player can do all that extra work and they can perform at this uh, high level and this high intensity level for an extended amount of time and practices and they seem to be handling it fine doesn't mean they necessarily always should be doing that. They shouldn't always be, be the ones out there taking all their reps. You have to really manage all of your players and really protect them players from themselves as well. Absolutely, especially at the, yeah, the elite level, protecting the players from themselves is pr pretty darn good advice. And, of course, saving them for that key time, winning time of the season is, is uh, obviously so crucial. And, Alan, this has been terrific. I mean, really fascinating, fascinating work you've done. Um, look forward to keeping up with all your work. And, yeah, can you give us a little glimpse into what you're working on now and, and what you've got lined up in the future? Uh, right now we're still working on, I know uh, myself, uh, Dr. Arndt, and one of my good uh, friends and colleagues, Dr. Bridget McFadden, she's working to really start to finish diving through all of these different biomarker data, looking at the comparison between men and women throughout the full season. We're going to try to look at uh, the effects of oral contraceptives on some of these biomarkers to see how these different aspects of training and these external aspects, even uh, a little bit of uh, diet analysis. We did finally try to dive into the dietary analysis to see how these things start to shape and affect our overall biomarker response. Terrific. Listen, that's fascinating stuff. You know, Alan, where can people stay connected with all with yourself and, and keep up with all your terrific research? Uh, they can always give me a follow on uh, Twitter. Uh, follow me on Instagram, and that's the best ways to really find out what I'm doing. Terrific. And what's the handle? Uh, my Twitter is alanwalker underscore gg. Awesome. We'll definitely include that in the uh, show notes. And uh, yeah, once again, Alan, really appreciate you carving out some time. And uh, again, really fascinating stuff. So appreciate uh, the contribution you've made. Awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Bose Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. Show your support. And it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high-quality guests. If you haven't heard, my new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance that is revolutionizing sports, is out. And I'm pleased to announce we actually hit the Amazon bestseller list in Canada and in the U.S. in sports medicine, physical medicine and rehab, and holistic medicine categories. So you can 
Find out more info on that and the expert insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And of course, you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones, or your local booksellers. Awesome. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And thanks again, folks, for listening, and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.